Good morning. <clears throat> Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, and chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. Uh, these passages are found in your pew Bible on pages 818 through 820. <clears throat> While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, let's pray together. Lord, it's uh, by your mercies now that we, on both sides of this uh, pulpit, present ourselves to you as a living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to you through Jesus Christ. This is our ultimate act of worship. To give you our whole selves. Oh, how we want to be like John the Baptist right now. We want the grace of decreasing. And we want your son to be increasing. And we want to be like John the Baptist, we want to hear the voice of the bridegroom speaking to his bride, and we want to rejoice in that. So give us ears for nothing but the voice of the bridegroom, and give us a passion to decrease so that he might increase. Oh, Father, and would you call savingly today Will you draw savingly today many to your son? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I love these two passages. They are so, uh, they're, you know, they're, they are bittersweet. They're very poignant and they're very powerful. And, and they're just such a window, I think, into the heart of Jesus. Um, I wanted them to be together. Um, you guys know the expression, I mean, it's, it's basically a proverb, uh, blood is thicker than water. You guys have heard that, right? And you know what that means. That means that experience has taught us that when push comes to shove, right, 
when you get in situations, ultimately, it doesn't matter where your loyalties were, how you define them beforehand, the, the greatest power of loyalty is ultimately going to be uh, your family, right? Family loyalties are going to trump all other loyalties. And these passages show that that's true often for everyone except Jesus. Uh, we're at a, a very uh, critical hinge in the Gospel of Matthew. Yet another one. I know it sounds like I say that to you every week. Uh, it's really true this week because we're about to head into chapter 13. And chapter 13 is the chapter in Matthew's Gospel that collects uh, a series of parables uh, taught by Jesus. Uh, this is another big block of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel. And this block of teaching has to do with the nature and character of his kingdom the kingdom that he has come to bring, the kingdom of heaven. And almost the entirety of chapter 13 is in the form of parables. Now, what is very interesting to me is that the two passages we're looking at this morning, the end of chapter 12 and the end of chapter 13, are the bookends for this critical block of teaching in Matthew's gospel, the the kingdom parables. And that the front bookend and the back bookend of this unit of teaching in in Matthew's gospel show us Jesus in two very similar situations, doing some remarkable things, showing us in these two passages that the very people we assume would be the closest to Jesus, his family, the members of his household, and the the people in his hometown of Nazareth, we would just take it as a given, probably most of us, that those people, that of all the people that Jesus is going to have to convince that they should follow him and believe him, that should be like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, they grew up with him, right? And the irony is that the people who are closest to him in both those bookends take offense at him. You see Jesus' isolation, both in his household, you see in, in 12, 46 through 50, and you see Jesus' isolation from his hometown community in Nazareth. He stands up, he teaches in his hometown synagogue that he has been in all his, almost all his life. And you notice how the people talk about him. They're, they're impressed with him superficially, but then they say, wait a second, isn't this the carpenter's son? In other words, you know what you're seeing there? You're seeing that 30-plus years after Jesus is born, the scandal regarding the circumstances of his birth still is with him. He's not really the carpenter's son, is he? We know that wasn't true. And this is Mary's son. He's just a regular guy. Who is he to stand up in front of us? And then Jesus has this amazing statement. He says, a prophet, referring to himself, is not without honor. Double negative, so you've got to be careful. A prophet is not without honor. This is so ironic. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And so we see at the end of 13 that Jesus is telling us that the experience that he has at the end of chapter 12 in verses 46 through 50 is he's being confronted by the unbelief even of Mary. Mary and his brothers. This is very powerful. 
And this sets us up for when we get into chapter 13 and we begin to see how it is uh, that people come to know Jesus. It is not by the power of human blood. There is not a natural affinity here. Friends, this just should astonish us. It should absolutely astonish us. If we're Christians this morning, do you realize what it means if you're a Christian? If you're a Christian this morning, it means that you have been given by God in his grace this incredible privilege of knowing the Son of God. And this should encourage you, those of us who come from families that don't share a vision of the worth of Jesus. I spent the entire time I was in California thinking about these verses. Because I'm the only Christian in my family. On both sides, my dad's side and my mom's side, for as far back as anyone knows. There is only one reason that I'm a Christian today. Only one, and it is that God saved me. There's only one reason that any of you are Christians also. It's that God saved you. It's not the family you grew up in. It certainly isn't your moral record. No, it's because God has been gracious to you. And what Jesus does in this passage, we're going to focus on 12, 46 through 50. And what he does, I mean, this is, if you're, if you're a non-Christian, you're here and you're, you're wondering, what is all this Christianity stuff? Man, oh man, is, is 12, 46 through 50 just, just setting out for you this incredible tip of a massive iceberg of what it means to come to Jesus Christ. What it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ is that he binds you by the power, not of human blood, but by the power of the thickest blood of all, his own blood, his own work in dying for his church to purchase her. This is the thickest blood of all, and that blood has power. It has power in three particular ways, according to this passage. Jesus binds us by this thickest blood of all, binds us to himself as his brothers and sisters, as his true family. Secondly, Jesus binds us to the Father as his children, which is just astonishing. And three, Jesus binds us to one another as brothers and sisters. So let's think first about what our passage teaches us about how Jesus binds us to himself as his true family. And this is the the foundational point of the passage. It's the one we're going to spend the most time on. You're going to feel like this is the whole sermon, and it almost is. Because we've got to be clear about this. And let me summarize it this way. Jesus is declaring in these verses that he, is make, he makes his disciples his siblings. Did you see that? He makes his disciples his true family. The church of Jesus Christ is the true family of Jesus Christ. You see that? Verses 49 and 50, he says, he puts his hand out toward his disciples and he says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What an astonishing statement that is, that Jesus Christ is 
saying that all his disciples, not just the disciples who were there, you notice in verse 49, you might think, well, he's just referring to the original 12, maybe. But notice how then he goes beyond that in verse 50 and says, whoever. You see that? So that still is echoing in this room this morning. That's a promise that is living this morning for everyone who hears it in this room. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That is amazing. Jesus is defining his true family. It makes me very uncomfortable. I was thinking about this passage this week. It makes me very, very uncomfortable in that kind of, it's that kind of terror you have about something that's so good you can't believe that it's actually true. It actually frightens you. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I'm just sitting here this week just looking at this passage and thinking, you know what he's saying is, now, of course, Mary, we see ultimately, it's a little hard to know exactly what's going on with Mary. Uh, Is she there because she's joined in the skepticism of Jesus' brothers? Or is she there because now she's, you know, presumably Joseph has died by now. It appears that she's a widow. And and she's under the care of Jesus' brothers. Is she basically just being, have they dragged her along and is she there reluctantly? Listen, we don't know. But at a minimum, she's participating in this approach to Jesus that is not anything short of a family intervention. And what makes me so, what, what has made me so terrifyingly unsettled in, a, in, a, in an exciting kind of way this week is to consider the possibility that Jesus Christ would possibly count me, count you, my brothers and sisters, as closer to him than his half-brothers were and his mother was at this time. That is astonishing to me. And to feel the force of what's going on here, we have to understand the scene. He's teaching, right? And then in verse 46, a man, man, well, his mother and his brothers uh, are outside. Notice how Matthew emphasizes that they stood outside. They don't come into where Jesus is teaching. They want Jesus to come out to where they are. That should tell you something. And a man comes in from the outside and says, uh, you can just see him approaching Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. In other words, they want to talk to you, so you should stop what you're doing and go out to them. They're your mother and your brothers. And Jesus doesn't budge an inch. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us why Mary and the brothers have come, but if you go to Mark chapter 3, you'll see that Mark tells us And in Mark chapter 3, 21, Mark says this. And when his family heard it, heard that Jesus had called disciples to himself, they went out to seize him. The family went out to seize him, for they were saying, quote, he is out of his mind. See, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and in his own household. See, they haven't come to listen to Jesus. They've come for a family intervention. And what Jesus does is he doesn't budge. He, he actually turns what they, intend into, to, what they intend to be 
uh, a family intervention, to tell him to tone it down, to tell him that you, you know he's, he's, he's getting a little too involved in this ministry thing. They are telling, that they're there to tell him to cool it. What he does is without moving an inch, he then turns that occasion into an opportunity for him to explain who his true family really is. But he replied to the man who told him, verse 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Can you imagine hearing him say that? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You feel how radical that is? It's radical in three ways. It's radical because of the power of the relationship that he's describing is radical because of the privilege of the relationship that he is uh, uh, describing that his disciples have with him. And it's radical because of the price of that relationship. Think first about the power of this relationship that he's describing. I mean, this is, what, what Jesus is saying is, is that he has the power to give a new identity to somebody. Now, just think about that. You think that you're already who you are. And I think that too. And so did the disciples who were there in the room. And so has everyone who's ever read this text and gotten to verse 50. But Jesus, in the middle of that room, is saying... Let me tell you, by my declaration, and by the way, this is something that only God can do. I tell you who my brother and my sisters and my mother are. I determine who's related to me. Now, you got to understand that Jesus is, at this moment, he's in a very traditional culture, and everyone he is addressing uh, at the time is in a very traditional culture and in a traditional culture guess where somebody gets their identity from their family you are what your family is you would never in a traditional culture say ask the question who am I without asking this question who are we Maria's maiden name Svensson which means that way, 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 way back, whoever started that family line was the son of some guy named Sven. We're not like that in our culture, right? We don't get our identity as much from the family. At least not the identity we want, usually. Uh, we, we tend to think about our identity in terms of our work or our possessions or where we live, that kind of stuff. But what Jesus is doing is he is doing something so subversive here. He is stepping in to the identity-granting power of his culture, and he is saying, it is I who tell you who you are. Now, friends, that is so important to get that at the heart of the gospel is the voice of God telling you who you are and who you aren't, by the way. Jesus is claiming for himself 
that his true family are those who do his father's will. And Jesus is saying, therefore, to his disciples, by my example, understand that your true family is the family that I create by my declaration and by my work. He's challenging our understanding of who our true family is. He's not disputing that we're supposed to get our identity from our family. He's just saying, get your true identity from your actual true family. Not your biological family, but your theological family, if I can say it that way. Not your family of origin, but your family of destiny. There's so much looking back in our culture at our families of origin. Some of you are so trapped so trapped, be either because your family of origin is your hope or because your family of origin you regard as a curse. And Jesus steps in with a better hope and a curse-lifting power to say, you are not, your identity is not what you think it is. It was from your family of origin. Your identity is a matter of your family of destiny, and it is I who determine that. Oh. That should set you free. It levels everybody. It means that there are no distinctions among people that matter besides this one. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? It's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what kind of family you grew up in. It doesn't, whether you grew up in a Christian family or whether you grew up in a non-Christian family, it doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what your IQ is, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter There's only one thing that matters, friends. There's only one source of identity. There's only one power to tell you who you are. It belongs to God. And through Jesus Christ, God is speaking to you, every one of us in this room, and says, if you will do the will of my Father, I count you, my brother, my sister, and even my mother. I'm not quite sure what that part means. I've spent so much time thinking about it. I'm sure it's probably obvious to some of you. So if you figured it out, the mother part, come let me know in the door. Because I think it's thrilling. There's a sense in which Jesus will show honor to his disciples. It's beautiful. Maybe you're a mom who has not been well regarded by her children. Well, Jesus will have you for his mother. It's so leveling. It's so elevating because what it means, friends, is that your past does not have the power to tell you who you will be from here on out. You see, if you, from this moment forward, you let your past tell you who you are, that's not on God. That's on you. And it is unnecessary. 
And it doesn't matter whether you think your past is good or whether you regard your past as a curse. Friends, Jesus Christ is here by his spirit and he is saying to you, if you want your identity to be from a different family, then all you must do is repent of your sins and trust in me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden from your past. And I will give you rest. I, the identity-giving Savior, the family-joining Savior, the brother and sister-making Savior, I'll give you a new identity. And in my family, there are no unwanted children. In my family, Jesus says, there are no unimportant children. In my family, there are no abandoned children. In my family, there are no overlooked children. In my family, there, there is never a need for the children, my siblings, to prove themselves. In my family... Every single child, every single one of my brothers and sisters is simultaneously a special needs child and a gifted child. I don't know anything in the world more beautiful than that. I don't. I don't know anything more capable of thrilling a heart than that. What a privilege that is, secondly, not just the power of that relationship. I mean, do you feel that, friends, that there's this voice outside of you? And, you know, in a couple minutes, we're going to get maybe more than a couple minutes. You never know. <laughs> we're going to get to 1 John 3, 1, where the Apostle John, you know, after 60 years of ministry, 60 years of knowing Jesus Christ, gets to the beginning of chapter 3 of 1 John, and he says, See! What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He says, this is incredible. And that's not us calling ourselves children of God. That's the voice of the Father and the voice of his Son calling us the children of God outside of us. It doesn't, not limited, the power of that declaration is not limited by our feelings. The ceiling on our feelings does not determine the power or the truthfulness of that declaration. Amen? What a privilege. Marvel at this. Jesus wants us to not only be numbered among his brothers and sisters, but he wants us to know that we are. That's why he does this publicly. Right? He asks the question, okay, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he stretches out his hand and he says, you see that? He does it publicly. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. He wants us to know. This is Jesus Christ who's saying this, friends. Have you ever met or encountered or even read about anyone more more wise than that, more wise than him, better than him, more tender than him, more compassionate than him, more courageous than him, more faithful than him, more truthful than him, more loving than him. Have you ever met anyone more of any of those things than Jesus Christ? And this great one says to you and to me this morning, I'll have you for my brother. I'll have you for my sister. That is astonishing. And let's not forget who we are. 
He says it to us. He welcomes us into his family as his brothers and sisters. And who are we? Jesus Christ, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, the writer says that Jesus Christ was not ashamed to call us his brothers. But who are we whom he calls his brothers? Well, we're the ones who have ignored his father. We're the ones who've defied his father. We're the ones who've denied his father. We're the ones who've disobeyed his father. The one that Jesus, we're the ones who have disregarded and belittled the one in the universe that Jesus loves with every fiber of his being, with an unquenchable passion from all eternity, and we have spit upon the one he loves. And yet he is willing to call us his brothers. And not just willing, he's not ashamed. We're also the ones who have caused his cross. We're the ones who've been the cause of every part of his suffering, all of it. And yet he, he looks at us. And where we are in the gospel, right? His disciples don't fully appreciate this yet, right? But when he says this to them, when he stretches out his hand and he looks at the disciples, he knows that there's going to be a cost for his welcoming of them into his family. And he knows exactly what it is. He knows that it doesn't just happen by his words, his sovereign declaration. It's going to happen by his sovereign consecration of himself on the cross. And that's the price. He's going to have to do the will of his father. It's just incredible to me. He knows And Matthew knows after he writes the gospel, looking back on this after Jesus' resurrection. And we know what it costs Jesus, what the price of this relationship is going to be to Jesus. It's an infinite price, right? I mean, for us, think about it. For us, there is a price here. There's a radical condition here. This is both very broad. This whoever does the will of my Father in heaven can be my brother or sister or mother. That's very broad, isn't it? That whoever. Who can fit in that whoever? Whoever can. But notice, he immediately makes it as narrow as he possibly can. That whoever is defined by doing the will of his father. Uh Uh-oh. Who of us? Who of us? can say, I'm good there. You know, in the college Bible study on Wednesday night, we were reading Mark chapter 10 when Jesus' exchange with a rich young ruler and then his, his debriefing after the rich young ruler goes away, his debriefing with the disciples. Because the disciples are very shaken by Jesus' exchange with the rich young ruler. And as, as he's reflecting with the disciples about what's happened, he says something to them that is so obvious and yet we forget it so much and it's embedded as, you know, kind of the opposite is embedded as an assumption in their thinking just as it is in ours. Jesus has to say to the disciples, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Do you feel that? Friends, do you feel that it is difficult to enter the kingdom of God? Do you feel that? When Jesus says, hey, listen, 
You can be my brother, my sister, my mother, provided you do the will of my Father in heaven. Do you feel the difficulty of that? You should. And Jesus looks at his disciples who've been with him, who've left their families and their households for him, and he says to them, looks them in the eye, just as he looks us in the eye this morning, he says, children, remember how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And do you remember what the disciples say? Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says the only thing that can possibly be said there, with man, it is impossible. Do you feel that, my friend? Do you feel the absolute, unconditional impossibility of you ever getting into the kingdom of God on your own strength, your own record, your own decisions, your own power, your own history? Do you feel that? Maybe you've gotten numb to it. Oh, may God let you feel it. Because what happens next is like a supernova of joy. Jesus forces us to face the absolute impossibility. It's not just... It's not just difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible for men to enter the kingdom of God unless God himself takes the side of men. And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Friends, we cannot satisfy this condition of doing the Father's will. And Jesus knows it. And so the only hope that anyone has for being welcomed by Jesus into his family as his brother, as his sister, as his mother, is if Jesus himself pays that price for us, is if Jesus himself takes our side. This great privilege of being in the family of God comes at the highest of prices. It is such a rare and precious thing. God, forgive us. Please forgive us, Father, for the way that we trivialize. We should fall down on our knees just to say that we are children of the Heavenly Father. That should, that should thrill us. That should stun us into, into just quiet submission before Him. That, uh, nothing should get our attention like that. That this great God who can flick off a little piece of dust into our atmosphere and make it supernova and break all these windows, that that father would come to us and say, I'll have you for my child. And that little glimpse of my power is just, just the smallest fringes of what I am able to bring to bear for you. No, for Jesus, this price that he pays is nothing less than the thickest of, thickest blood of all. It's his own blood. All the costs for making the declarations of verses 49 and 50 come true. All the costs are borne by Jesus willingly, freely. And even the writer to the Hebrews says, with joy. And when he stretches his hand out, friends, when he stretches his hand out, and, and it sweeps across all his disciples to show to this man, I just would love to know who this man was who came up to him. What happened to him? How was his life affected by Jesus making this declaration? As Jesus stretches out his hand and looks at all the disciples and then makes this amazing promise that whoever does the will of his Father in heaven, he will be my brother, my sister, 
my mother. Jesus knows when he stretches his hand out to make that declaration that ultimately the price is going to be that he's going to have to stretch his whole body out on this cross. That it's going to cost nothing less than the thickest of all blood. That, that he's going to have to put himself in a place where he bears in his body all the just retribution for our failures to do his Father's will, right? Because we have not kept his Father's will. We haven't done it. And so Jesus is going to have to pay that as our substitute. And I just want you to think about how powerful this is because later on, when Jesus is in Gethsemane, he is going to say on the night before his crucifixion, he's going to say to the Father, he's going to prove himself the true and ultimate Son of God. And he's going to say, not my will, but your will. Even when it costs him the most. And he's going to say that for people like you and me who have spent our entire lives saying to God, his Father, not your will. But my will. That's a high price. Think about it. Jesus' whole ministry was very lonely. It was a very lonely ministry. No one really ever understood him. I mean, I just think Mary's presence, Mary's presence, I know I've told you, I hope you feel a lot of things today. I don't know why I keep saying that, but really, I hope you feel what that must have felt like. Mary, there with the brothers, wanting to tell him to tone it down. You know, it's just like, it's just like Simeon predicted in Luke 2 when Mary and Joseph present Jesus, Jesus in the temple. You remember Simeon? Simeon says to Mary, hey, this child was born for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and a sword, looking at Mary, and a sword will even pierce your soul. You see, friends, nobody has an inside track with Jesus. Everyone is called to repentance and faith. There is nobody who does not need Jesus Christ as their Savior to fulfill the will of the Father on their behalf. Not even Mary. All his life, Jesus was alone and what sustained him was hearing his father's voice, right? Hearing his father's voice at his baptism. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hearing his father's voice at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son, right? And this one who was so faithful and who always did the will of his father, right? Who always did the will of his father was willing, in order that we would be numbered among his brothers and sisters, think about this, in, so that we could be in the family of God with Jesus over us as the firstborn among us, as the eldest brother, Jesus, who survived on the favor of his father, was willing not only to, to submit himself to the will of his father in the garden the night before he was crucified, but even on the cross, right, to be disowned by his father so that we could be inherited. To hear absolute silence, to put himself in a place of being forsaken and rejected, uh, like one who had completely rejected his father's will, when in fact he was the only one who had ever done it. 
And why did he do that? He did that so that you and I, so that I could stand before you today and tell you in the power of the Holy Spirit and on the authority of God, whoever does the will of the Father in believing in that substitute will be the brother and the sister and the mother of Jesus, will be his true family by the declaration of God and the power of the thickest blood of all. So you could hear that, so you could respond to that. Now, friends, some of us, when we hear this this news about what Jesus is willing to do for us, some of us need to hear that and find new strength there because we're discouraged. Oh, friend. Oh, friend. Think about the love of Christ and what he was willing to do for you. Nothing you are going through now is darker than what he was willing to go through for you. And others of us need to hear in this not strong consolation, but need to hear here a call to repentance because some of us are grumbling against this Jesus. Some of us are harboring hard thoughts about him in our hearts. Some of us are being skeptical about him and are in the midst of trials that we don't fully understand. And we are effectively saying in our hearts and preaching the sermon to ourselves that he cannot be trusted. Oh, friends, he's told you that he will welcome you as his brother and sister. How could you harbor hard thoughts, hard thoughts against him? Okay, that's the first point. I told you it was going to be the longest one. Let's think next about how Jesus not only binds us to himself as his true family, but also to his father as the father's children. And this is something that Jesus reveals to us, right? You cannot have uh, and you won't have God. You won't know the father unless you know Jesus as your brother. You can't just pick and choose among these. You cannot just say, oh, well, I want God for my father, but I don't want to deal with Jesus as my brother. I don't want to talk about the price that he has to pay. I want to have the father without the price. doesn't work that way. Turn back with me to chapter 11 in Matthew's gospel, verse 27 in Matthew 11. This is on page 816 of your pew Bible. Now, I want you to see this. We're going to come back to this again and again when we look at chapter 13, but it's also relevant now because the only way you can have God as your father is to know Jesus as your brother. That's the only path. He has to identify with you and you have to identify with him and his work for you because it is impossible for you and me to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the family of God, unless we've been given a brother who will pay the price by the thickest blood of all. Now look at verse 27 in Matthew 11. All this is Jesus. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no, Now notice this. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one except the Father. And no one, this is the second part I want you to see. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see what that's saying? That's saying you cannot know the Father unless you know the Son. And it's up to the Son whether or not you're going to know the Father. And now you connect that with the end of chapter 12. And what Jesus is saying is, you have to have me as your brother 
if you're going to have God as your father. This is Jesus' revelation. And secondly, this is also the father's plan. You see, Jesus is saying, if I'm your brother, you're the father's children. When I give you to myself, when I give myself to you as your brother, I am also giving uh, the father to you as your father. And this has been the father's plan from the beginning. I'll let you look it up yourself, but Romans 8:29. Paul says this, it was also in our call to worship, for those whom he, the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the Father's plan from before the foundation of the world, that there would be a family formed in which Jesus would be preeminent, and in which all those whom Jesus redeems would enjoy the benefits and the status and the privileges, all those things in the affirmation of faith that Mike led us in this morning from the, uh, the larger catechism. All those privileges would belong to every adopted child in that family, and we would all know that it was because Jesus, the elder brother, had welcomed us to participate with him in the inheritance that he earned. That's the Father's plan. That means, friends, that from before the foundation of the world, if you're in Christ this morning, that means that the Father from before the foundation of the world, has been waiting to hear you address him as Abba, Father. That's what Jesus is showing us, that he's the one who's fulfilling this purpose of the Father. And we've talked about 1 John 3, 1, that this is the fruit of the Father's love. It's not just Jesus' love, it's the Father's love. And friends, this, this reminds us this, of this, that the essence of Christianity is relationship. Now, I just need to say this. I need to say it in two ways, and you're going to... I hope none of you are going to tweet this, because I'd get in trouble. I, well, I would never read it, so it wouldn't matter. But the good news, let me say it this way, the good news of the gospel is not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is better than the gospel. See, it's very easy to talk about the gospel like it's this true but impersonal message. And sometimes we have to do that. But I want to make sure, both for myself and for you, that when we talk about the gospel, we realize that what the good news of that gospel ultimately is, is that through that gospel, both Jesus and the Father, by the power of the thickest blood of all, are giving themselves to us. And that what it means to be a Christian is to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and be able to address him as my Lord. And to call upon the Father and to say, Abba, Father. 
Not to just know about these things, to take the fatherhood of, of the Father or the brotherhood of Jesus as if these were abstractions out there that have nothing to do with the way we live. Friends, you will know, J.I. Packer says, how much you understand of Christianity by the degree to, to which you, you make much of what it means to have God as your Father what it means to live before him as your father, what it means for you to trust in his promises to you and his power for you and his determination, unlike any earthly father, to bless your socks off. And to have Jesus as your brother who is your sympathetic high priest who understands you from the inside out and has given himself for you. Friends, does your Christian life look like that? It ought to. And if it doesn't, you're living so sadly far beneath the blessings that Jesus lived and died and rose again to purchase for you. You are wasting the thickest blood of all. Don't do that. It's so unnecessary. And lastly, what Jesus does by this price that he's willing to pay is he binds us to one another as brothers and sisters. Those first two relationships are basically vertical, if you want, and this one's totally horizontal. You see, this is the third relationship that is created by this thickest blood of all. It's the relationship that we now have uh, by Jesus' declaration with one another as brothers and sisters. When he calls us into his family as his brothers and sisters, giving us membership in his true family, he is also necessarily making us brothers and sisters with one another. Now, this is going to be uncomfortable because we're not very good at it. But do you see, for the Christian, I think one of the implications of what Jesus... And listen, I am the worst at it, okay? Let me just get that out of the way. For the Christian, we... I I think one of the implications of what Jesus is saying is that a Christian should never... Never be able to say, I belong to Jesus Christ, without also saying, we belong to Jesus Christ. A Christian should never be able to say my father, without also saying, our father. See, this is a very powerful text about the preciousness of the church to Jesus. Is the church precious to you? And I'm not just talking about the universal church, which is everywhere, which is really easy to love because you're not close enough to to see the acne and the blemishes. And you're not close enough to the universal church to smell the bad breath. I'm talking about this church. This is where we are. This is Jesus' sovereign declaration. And what God has joined together, just like he says about marriage, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. God, God has made us brothers and sisters with one another. Have you ever noticed how good news creates a community? It always does. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a book you like or a restaurant you like or a game you like, some sports team that you saw. I still remember. I still remember. This is the last time the Mariners did anything great. It was 1995. And game five of the American League Division Series, bottom of the 11th inning, Ken Griffey Jr. is on first. I was there. I was there. Ken Griffey Jr. on first base. 
If he scores from first base, we win. And Edgar Martinez rips a double down the, right, uh, down the left field line, goes into the corner. Ken Griffey Jr. scores all the way from first base. Mariners win. Last time the Mariners won. And I still remember walking back to my office that night to get to my car, talking with complete strangers about what we had just seen. It was such good news. Good news always creates a community. And if that's true, then how much more the best news of all, creating the strongest bonds. That's what Jesus' vision is here. The thickest blood of all, friends, was poured out for you and for me. To, it's the best news of all. There is no better news than the gospel, than, what, than the news that man has sinned and yet God has suffered in Jesus Christ to purchase us, to make us one with God, to make us members of his family. Friends, the thickest blood of all calls me, calls you by binds us, frees us to agree with Jesus that whoever does the will of our Father is our brother and our sister. Are we living like that? In this congregation, if you belong to Jesus, you belong to those who belong to Jesus and they belong to you. But if we're honest, there are people in this church whose names we don't even know. We see them, We come to worship, we smile at them, but what do we really know about them? There are people, if we're honest, even in this congregation, who we would prefer not to talk to, and we avoid them. And again, we look like we're busy, we fake like we're busy, or we just keep small talk going because we don't really want to know their burdens, even though Jesus tells us in Galatians 6.2 that the way you fulfill his law is by bearing one another's burdens. There are people in this congregation who stay at the fringes, who check in only when they find it convenient, who are not bearing anyone's burdens, and who themselves are not letting anyone bear theirs. It is no wonder then that if you are not living like the brother or sister you are, either for yourself or toward others, that you find your relationship with the church unfulfilling. This is not naive. This is what it means to believe. Friends, people are hard. They're also glorious. Yes. Are they hard or are they glorious? Yes. Because people in the church have been purchased by the thickest blood of all. And this is the greatest power in the universe. It's a power so great that it is eventually going to change the entire universe. And yes, we're works in progress, and sometimes the progress is going much slower than we want. But friends, Jesus says, regardless of how we feel about it, that he's made us his family. So it's not our place to disagree with him or to live like what he says doesn't matter. Again, this if we're a family, then that means that we're united together. We don't choose our brothers and sisters, do we, biologically? I did not get a vote on my little sister. Right? I mean, something so obvious, right? 
But God's called us together. And like a family, we have responsibilities as children. We've been entrusted with meaningful work. We've been entrusted with a duty to love one another, to know one another, to not close the doors to our rooms and sulk and only come out at mealtime. No, we've been given a power of membership in Jesus' family. And, and if Jesus wasn't ashamed to call me, if Jesus wasn't ashamed to call me his brother, who am I to be ashamed to call anyone else my brother? This is not naive. This is not what it means to be naive. This is what Jesus is telling us it actually means to believe. When he tells us that there is no greater power in this universe and the thickest blood of all. Let's pray. Lord, you love your bride. You love your brothers and sisters. And we ask that you would increasingly make us a people who love to sing that same music of the gospel, of the family of God, back and forth to one another so that when people look in here, when people come in here, they would experience the wonder of the power that you possess to give anyone a new identity by the power of your blood. We pray in your name. Amen.